0: Well, I don't know about you, but I'm blessed because the master has taught us how to multiply. And as we give, we just sit and watch what he does. Isn't that glorious? Good news. I do want to welcome you to Rivermont this morning and ask you to please open uh, one of the pew Bibles or your own Bible to the book of Nehemiah to Nehemiah chapter 12. If you're using the Pew Bibles, Nehemiah 12 is found on page 408. Now, Pastor Clay and Pastor Brett have just finished their care retreat in Great Britain with Dorcas Harbin, and along with our missionaries from across Europe and from North and West Africa. It is so good to have Pastor Brett with us this morning, although he arrived late last night. When Pastor Clay returns, uh, we will return to the book of Daniel. But as you find Nehemiah 12, uh, chapter 12, I want to remind you that Nehemiah was a contemporary of Ezra and a cupbearer to the king of Persia. He leads the third and the last return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. Nehemiah challenges God's people to rise and rebuild the shattered walls of Jerusalem. It occurs about 150 years after the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar which means that his ministry is almost 100 years after the finished ministry of the prophet Daniel. In spite, though, of opposition and hardship, the task of building, rebuilding the walls is completed in only 52 days. Yet by contrast, the task of reviving and reforming the people of God within those rebuilt walls demands years of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's godly life and his leadership. The span of this book that we're in, therefore, is about 19 years of his ministry and his time with God's people. Now, as you turn to Nehemiah 12, I want to answer two questions uh, for you that you may have. And the first one is simply this. Why, Ron, are we in Nehemiah chapter 12 this morning? Well, part of the answer is that towards the end of our Living Stones building project, I landed in this chapter in studying Nehemiah. I shared this passage during one of our staff devotional times earlier in this year. And then again with the Lynchburg staff of the sports outreach ministry in response to their request to lead a staff devotion time following their transition into their new offices here in Lynchburg. This was about two months ago. Two months ago today, in fact. These verses encouraged me greatly then. And I hope it encouraged them. And I hope now they will encourage you. But there is a second question from a broader observation from Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12. For if you read these two chapters of Scripture, you may wonder, why did God put these two chapters in His inspired Word? For these two chapters list a lot of very confusing, hard to pronounce names that are heads of families in Jerusalem, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants, Various officials appointed by the king of Persia. It also lists the people who lived outside of the city of Jerusalem that needed to farm to provide food for those in the city. And the list goes on and on. Yet to, ask, to answer my question, I think this is key. The Lord knew and loved these people. Each served in his own uh, respective sphere of effective operation for the sake of the city of Jerusalem and for the nation. Each had a very different role, yet each role was vital to the entire cause. And then the lengthy catalog of hard-to-pronounce citizens yields to the celebration of the dedication of the walls of Jerusalem that we find now before us. The people of God were able to rejoice with great joy as they embraced worship and community and mission together so this is the reading of god's word nehemiah chapter 12 beginning at verse 27 Uh, this is under the leadership of nehemiah the governor and ezra the priest and scribe and at the dedication of the wall of jerusalem they sought the levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Down to verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people in the gates and in the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. And this particular choir was under the leadership of Ezra. Then down to verse 38. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I, this is Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. Verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. This is now the temple. And I and half of the officials with me. Verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to You seeking Your favor. To help us to understand the depths and wonders of Your love as revealed to us in Scripture. We come to hear Your voice and to learn how to be conformed to the image of Your Son, our God and Savior. Please speak to us through Your Word by the power of Your Spirit. For Your servants listen. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, for Rivermont today, Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12 reflect something central to the body of Christ as we aspire to rejoice with great joy. In the body of Christ, God gifts each one of us In a multiplicity of different ways, yet every one of us, every part of the body is vital for the overall functioning and the health of the body, the church. And of course, we know this from Romans chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and Ephesians 4 from the Apostle Paul. Now, issues can develop in the body of Christ. Because as Paul tells us in First Corinthians 12, the eye looks at everyone from the perspective of the eye only at times. And the hand views everything from the perspective of the hand at times. But the eye should value the hand and the hand should value the eye. So here at Rivermont, we prayerfully seek to complement each facet of our ministries together in worship and community and in mission without friction or rivalry. We have multiple complementary ministries, but not competing ministries here at the church. As Christ's body. We long to rejoice with great joy, for joy itself becomes a witness to our friends and our neighbors in Lynchburg and the world. But there's something else that must be said here as we think about this chapter. As with Nehemiah, with his vision and mission to rebuild and to restore people in Jerusalem, our church... And so many of our ministry partners, they have carefully discerned vision and mission statements to help guide the way, to discern what is best among many good opportunities for connection and for mission. For Rivermont, our mission statement is right at the front of your bulletin each week. We seek the renewing of lives through God's compelling love in Lynchburg and the world. For campus outreach, whose summer leadership team we welcome today. It's good to have you with us. Their goal is simple. They want to build leaders. Their official vision statement is glorifying God by building laborers on the campus for the lost world. Now, this mission and vision with students means that their efforts do not end on graduation day. Rather, that is where it continues. For they wish to launch people into the world in order to continue to bless the world to the glory of the Lord. For sports outreach and our friends who labor with Rodney Suddeth, they have a great tagline. I love it. They wish to be about restoring hope and transforming lives. So they're motivated and energized to seek to share the love of Christ in tangible ways as people come to know the Lord and as they encourage them to learn how to sustain themselves and live to the glory of their Savior as God helps us to restore or rejoice with great joy, we rightly move forward in service and celebrate what God is doing in and through us. Yet there is a flashing yellow light. Those of us with type A personalities, those of us who strive to get things done, those of us who push to finish the project, yes, I'm thinking about the beauty of our Living Stones building project, Sometimes we have to step out of task completion mode. We need to wonder and marvel about the significance of all the Lord is doing and what He is doing among His people. Now for some, this is difficult because we want to embrace the first six chapters of Nehemiah as a big checklist which works well if you're trying to finish a project for the greater good. Secure permission from the king to leave for Jerusalem. Check. Procure documents from the king to ensure safe travel and to obtain sufficient supplies. Check. Inspect Jerusalem carefully. Nehemiah did it. Check. Convince the people of Jerusalem to help with the project. Check. Successfully troubleshoot when opposition and strife arises. Check. And finally, finish the wall. Check. And yet... We're likely to miss some vital rejoicing if we pursue a God-ordained vision in the same manner as we would tackle a to-do list in our household chores. That's why we begin with this ongoing need for a pure heart. Now sometimes we need forgiveness, we need a pure heart when we focus on people instead of the Lord. When we expect people to meet our needs in place of Christ. Now sometimes we need forgiveness, a pure heart, when we get angry because our goals become blocked by any number of circumstances. And yet in studying the book of Nehemiah, another matter, the heart begins to emerge. Sometimes we need forgiveness. We need a pure heart when we attempt ministry and imagine vision as being only about other people. That is, the recipients of our work When in reality, what is often the case is that we too fundamentally need God's grace to change our lives as we seek to bless those around us in process. From who we are in Christ, from how we abide in Him, we are able to reach out and bear fruit. Now Andy Stanley said it well. Your visions are not merely avenues for God to do something through you. They are also avenues for God to do something in you. Now we may wonder what God might do through us when we engage in ministry. We need to find out what God is doing in us as we engage His help. For indeed, we need His grace in purifying our hearts before we can see how our ministries will encourage the hearts of others around us. Bluntly stated, we need pure hearts in Christ before we're able to proceed in worship with great joy as a witness to the world around us. This principle is affirmed in verse 30 here. Listen to what is written. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Even though this process of purification is not spelled out for us, Nehemiah highlights a necessary preparation function for all of us Now, I'm not speaking here of some ancient purification rite, but I am speaking of our need to engage in worship with a clean and pure heart first. This is not about perfection. This is not a claim to be holier than thou. Yet this is the truth about our need to pursue, to pursue and to receive forgiveness from God. This is the truth of how forgiveness is a prerequisite for our joy before Him. Now the good news of the Gospel is this. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Bible also tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water with the body of our Lord. Because of Christ's work on the cross, the only thing separating you and me from a clean and pure heart is to turn boldly from our sin and to turn humbly to Christ and trusting Him for our salvation. Our sincere prayer of confession, brothers and sisters, it is good. Now, I'll labor this point because it would be futile for me to point you to the way of joy without first pointing you to the way of forgiveness in Christ. If we are to be marked by joyfulness, we need to be always pursuing the forgiveness that is available in Christ as Christ changes our hearts daily. And yet with these pure hearts... Nehemiah directs the leaders of Judah to climb up on top of the wall and that's when our pure hearts become worshiping hearts. Look at this. These leaders were soon followed by two choirs. Ezra went ahead on the first choir while Nehemiah accompanied the second. And based on what follows, I highly doubt that these two groups were solemn. Rather, I imagine them dancing and clapping and parading on the wall, giving thanks to the God of their salvation. Now moving in opposite directions on top of the wall, they converge at the temple and they sing praises to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. Worship, you see. To worship God is to rejoice and to extol in His great attributes and His great actions on our behalf. It is to revere God above all else. And of course, this means that true worship is not just outward. It is also inward. It engages the mind and the heart, the will, and the emotions. And I just want you to think about the first two vows that our confirmation, confirmands that are now members, uh, adult members have made as they became adult members today. Listen to these two vows. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God and without hope for your salvation? Except in his sovereign mercy. Number two. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners and do you receive and depend upon trust and trust in Him alone for your salvation as He is offered in the Gospel? Now how does that impact our worship? Well, this is it. Everyone here today who is a confirmed member of this church, you have said, I do to these first two vows, And if we really understand what these questions ask of us and if we really mean I do sincerely from the depths of our heart I think at least two things are going to happen for all of us the first thing is that we're going to be collectively a humble people because when you acknowledge that you're a sinner without hope accepting God's sovereign saving grace and mercy you cannot help but be humble. You realize that God has graciously shown you His favor in forgiving your sins. And that realization of our need and God's graciousness in supplying that need ought to help us to be a people that are constantly humble before the Lord. Now when I look out at you as a congregation, when I look out at the people of Rivermont, I see a beautiful people, an intelligent people, energetic and gifted people, people with enormous resources. It is true. Yet it is my hope that as time passes, more and more our friends and our neighbors in the people, or in the community around us, will also say, "Yes, they are a beautiful people, a talented people, a gifted people, but something else stands out. They are also humble." They realize that all that they have is a gift from the Lord. They know that all that they have has been given as a trust from God. And they use their gifts and their God-given abilities with a humble spirit, with gospel humility, to bring glory to their God. But there's a second thing about these two questions, if we understand them and we answer them sincerely. We're also going to be a people absolutely caught up in the celebration of God's grace and mercy. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! God's sovereign mercy won't be something that we shove off into a corner and ignore. God's grace won't be something that we hide in a back room when people come over and visit us in our homes. God's love will be something right up in front of us in which we're always wanting to rejoice in and we're always being thankful for. Worship, therefore, will be our heartbeat. It will be something that just flows throughout everything we are and do in the church. It will become a part of us, conscious, tangible part of us that we're always celebrating because we have been recipients of God's saving mercy and love. Now, from this growing gospel humility, in a growing gospel celebration of his love in all aspects of our lives, we erupt with a joyful heart. Listen again to verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Did you hear that? There is a five-fold repetition of the word for joy and rejoicing. And this ensures that we won't miss the spirit behind this celebration. The people of Jerusalem were displaying a holy exuberance as they worshipped with joyful hearts. Now I understand that there are days of great sadness in our lives. In some ways, that's the beauty of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads. He restores my soul. It's a picture of peace and tranquility and blessedness and provision from our Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are days when perhaps we feel like we're in the valley of the shadow of death. There are days when I'm surrounded by enemies and sometimes those enemies are not people, but really thoughts or fatigue. You may not be here this morning and filled with the level of joy that's here in Nehemiah chapter 12, and God understands that. And yet, the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians, writing from a prison cell, calls us to rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again in case we missed it. Rejoice! Let your gentleness be evident to all. And then Paul gives us the reason For the Lord is near. God wants you to rejoice and to praise Him with a heart of settled contentment. There's no greater joy, dear family of God, than to give God praise for who He is and what He has done and continues to do for us in our Savior. We rejoice in His loving kindness. We praise Him for His mercy, His grace, His forgiveness. We give thanks for His abundant life that we enjoy in Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. And of course, you know that this joy is part of the fruit of God's Holy Spirit, which means that your joy and your ability to rejoice in the Lord always are supernatural. For they bubble up within us from the nature of God that is instilled within us. They well up within those in whom God's Holy Spirit dwells. So accordingly, your joy and rejoicing are internal workings of God's grace and do not hinge on eternal circumstances. As Nehemiah affirms, God had given them great joy. Again, I labor the point. It is senseless for me to attempt to stir you to contrive your own happiness. Yet this kind of joy, joy that transcends our circumstances, it is a gift of God. This joy is the echo that follows being forgiven in Christ. It's a powerful joy. As Nehemiah explains, the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. We have already been told about the two great, great choirs. We have been told about the musicians and trepents and cymbals and a variety of stringed instruments. No doubt this would have been a marvelous concert. But what does Nehemiah report? It was the joy of Jerusalem that was heard from afar. Those outside of Jerusalem were not talking about the talented choirs or the gifted instrumentalists. As wonderful as they must have been, Rather, they were talking about the witness of the joy of God's people. You know, dear family, we live in a world starved for happiness. And in in this world starved for happiness, authentic joy is one of the most persuasive attributes for us to offer as God's people. Which means that we need to possess that in the depths of our souls. To put it another way, as we think about the body of Christ and our ministry together, for us to succeed in our mission to seek the renewing of lives through God's compelling love in Lynchburg and the world, for us to be able to keep God close and to keep close to people and to bring God and people together in ministry. We need God's help to be marked by genuine rejoicings. We need this God-given joy spoken of by Nehemiah and also the Apostle Paul. Beloved, if we are to witness effectively for Christ, may our joy be heard from afar. May we rejoice with great joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray.